If you have your Bible, turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 1. I want to begin by asking you a question. And the question is this. Have you ever thought about how many questions there are in life? I mean, life is really just a series of questions. You start very young asking questions. Can I have that candy? You know, can I get, can I get that toy? Can I... Can I, you know, and questions continue. You get into school, what classes are I going to take? Am I, am I going to participate in this activity? Am I going to play this sport? You graduate from high school, where am I going to go to college? If you're not going to college, where am I going to go to work? And by the way, that question will just be postponed till after college. Still got to make it. So what am I going to do? Where am I going to work? How am I going to spend my life, how am I going to live on what I'm going to do, you know, should I, for me, you know, as a younger man, it was, should I get a real job or go in the ministry, uh, but all, all of life is questions, you get out of college, or maybe before, who am I going to marry, okay, I'm going to marry this one, or are we going to have children, how many children are we going to have, uh, all of life is questions. And I thought when I was younger that it would get better. It doesn't. Now that I am <clears throat> at the advanced age I am, life is full of questions. Like, uh, what, what, what did I come into this room for? You know, where did I put my car keys? Where is my phone? What is my best friend's first name? You know, uh, questions abound. But there is one question that is more important than all of the questions that you will face in life. The one question is the one that Jesus asked his disciples at Caesarea Philippi. He asked them this question, Who do you say that I am? That is the question that is more important than any other, to decide who Jesus Christ is. Because the answer to that question determines your eternal destiny. Now, you may be thinking, I thought my destiny was determined about whether or not I put my faith in Jesus Christ. That's true. But before you can put your faith in someone, you have to know them. You have to know who they are and what they have done. For your faith to truly be in Jesus, you have to know it. The Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons have faith in a Jesus, but not in the Jesus that is revealed in the pages of Holy Scripture. So it's not faith that will save them. It is not faith that will, that has any redemptive quality. The answer to this question not only affects your eternal destiny, but it also affects how you live. If God has opened your eyes to see that Jesus Christ is Lord, then that 
has something to say about who you marry, about how you relate to your mate, how you rear your children, how you operate your business, how you manage your money. It will govern all of your life. Since Jesus Christ is the Lord of the universe, then he must be Lord of every aspect of our life, beginning with our thought life. That must even be controlled by Jesus Christ. John begins his gospel with no introduction. He doesn't bother to tell uh, who it is that's writing the book. There's no greetings. He just starts the book with the answer to this critical question. Who is Jesus Christ? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And then after expounding on that verse, in verses 2 through 13, he comes back again to the question, who is Jesus Christ? And he sets forth one of the greatest mysteries that our minds can even begin to deal with. The Word became flesh, he said, and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the story of Christmas. And this is the only legitimate reason for celebrating Christmas. The only reason that we celebrate Christmas is because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The eternal Word The Almighty Creator took on human flesh and dwelt among us. I I said last week, there are many mysteries in the Bible. The the mystery of creation, the mystery of the atonement, the mystery of election, the, the mystery of predestination. But by far, by far, the greatest mystery of time or eternity is that the eternal Word became flesh. How? How is that even possible? How could God become man? it's, It's beyond our ability to even begin to comprehend or imagine. We cannot. That's why Paul, writing to Timothy, said, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. God became a man. John says, you remember in our study of John a few years ago, that he gives the reason for his writing his book over in chapter 20 and verse 31. He says he writes the book so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, And that believing, you may have life in his name. That's why I wrote it. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you have life in his name. John makes four affirmations in verse 1. It is a revelation in eternity. First he says that Jesus is eternal. Verse 14 makes it abundantly clear that the word that we're talking about in verse 1 is Jesus Christ. 
Uh, in a moment, we'll look at the implications of him referring to himself as the Word. But for now, focus on the statement, in the beginning was the Word. What does that remind you of immediately? First verse in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And both statements hit you right between the eyes. They don't let you debate, does God exist? They don't present themselves, well, if it, this is my opinion, if you should care to accept it. No, just in the beginning, God. In the beginning was the Word. John wants us to see that he is writing about a new creation. Here is a new creation. Now, not Jesus as God. He was not created. He is eternal. But Jesus as man is a new creation. Beginning in the womb of a virgin. That mystery that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. The statement here means that in the beginning of time, before the heavens and the earth existed, the Word was already existing. Uh, there has never been time when the Word was not. He is the eternal I Am. We make statements like that, and they're, the statements are easy to make, and they are impossible to fully comprehend. You and I cannot comprehend a time when there was no time. We cannot comprehend eternity because it's impossible to, to wrap your brain around it. I mean, we can, we can talk about a billion years ago, and even that's beyond comprehension, but how can you fathom eternity without time? A place where there was no time. Everything that we perceive, ever how you believe it came about, everything that we can perceive had a beginning. But the eternal word had no beginning. That is why God described himself in the Old Testament and the New as I am. I am. When did you start? I am. When will you end? I am. I am. No beginning, no end. Independent of time. God created time. Do you understand that? God created time. God created space. God created matter. So the first statement is that the word is eternal. Secondly, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Notice very carefully what John says. It's amazing the detail that God gives as he inspires the apostles to write the words of Holy Scripture. He says the word, watch it, is with God. With God. The people who deny the Trinity have a terrible time with this. Because to be with somebody, there has to be somebody else. You know, I can be by myself, but I can't be with myself. You see, to be, I got to be with another person. The word was with God. It means that the whole existence of the word was oriented toward the Father. Uh, perhaps the best way to understand this in some limited way is to think of the preposition combining the two ideas 
of accompaniment and relationship. This verse is of great importance. In the first phrase of verse 1, John establishes the eternal nature of the Word as God. In the second, he shows that the Word existed in the closest possible connection with the Father. So the Word is not a philosophy. It's not an abstract idea. The Word is a person. There is a person who's with God. This person is God and yet distinguishable from the Father. The mystery of the Holy Trinity, that God subsists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there is no illustration on earth that will adequately, adequately convey that idea. People use illustrations that are faulty. They'll use illustrations like saying, well, now, you know, I'm a, I'm a husband and I'm a father and I'm a grandfather. And so there you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But I'm not three persons. That's modalism. It's an ancient heresy known as modalism. Or they will say, well, you know, water can consist of, of, of a, a frozen or a liquid or a gas. That, again, is modalism. You've still just got one water. You know. God is one and yet three. How is that possible? I don't know. My finite mind, my puny little brain cannot begin to comprehend eternal triune God, and yet the Bible teaches it as truth. But again, as I've said many, many times, if I can figure out all there is to know about God, you wouldn't want me up here, and you wouldn't be here, because if I can figure out all there is to know about God, there ain't much to him. That goes for you as well. I just didn't want to insult you. Uh, but the teaching of the Bible is each person of the Trinity is fully God, and yet there's not three gods. There's one God subsisting in three persons. And that's the third phrase. Jesus is eternal. He is distinguishable from the Father. And he's God. And the Word was God. Nothing higher can be said. Everything that can be said about the Father can be said about the Son. This statement can't be watered down. John is not merely saying there's something that's divine about Jesus. He's not saying there's some spark of divinity in the man Jesus. He is affirming that Jesus Christ is eternal God. And it's emphatic. The word order in the Greek makes it emphatic. Now, if you've had any kind of contact with, contact with Jehovah's Witnesses, they will say, well, that verse is not properly translated because there, uh, there is no definite article in the Greek before God. And by the way, every cult errs with regard to the person of Jesus Christ. All the cults make their mistake there. Because Satan knows if you don't have a biblical view of who Jesus is, then you can't answer that critical question correctly. You will answer it wrongly. You will say that he is the first one created. Or you will say he's the highest of God's creation. If you don't truly 
know the Son as God and honor Him as God, you cannot truly honor the Father either. Jesus makes that clear in John chapter 5. So what do you say to those people who come to you and say, there's no definite article in the Greek? Because there's not. They are correct in that. First, this is the only way in Greek to say the word was God. Can't say it any other way. If John had put the definite article before God, it would have equated the word totally with God. It would have made the word and the Father one. Not, not two separate people. It, you, couldn't, you could not say it any other way. The distinction between the word and God would be lost if you put the definite article in there. And then the next statement, the word was God, would be nonsense, or the word was with God would be nonsense. And secondly, without getting too technical, and I'm not a Greek scholar, you know that, I know a little Greek, he ran a restaurant in Knoxville, nice guy, I liked him. But I'm no Greek scholar, but I, I read Greek scholars, and I know this, there is a rule called Coel's rule that shows that when definite nouns precede the verb, they almost always lack the definite article. In the scriptures. For example, the same Greek construction is used in John chapter 1 verse 49. Where Nathaniel proclaims, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. There's no definite article before king. But obviously Nathaniel isn't saying you are a king of Israel. You are the king of Israel. That's what he is saying. The lack of the definite article emphasizes the quality of the noun. What it is saying is the word was God. Plain, simple, clear. Don't muddy it up. Thirdly, there are many scriptures in the Bible that plainly proclaim Jesus as God. Read the Gospel of John. Remember when we went through the Gospel of John? How many times Jesus himself says that he is God how many times his disciples say that he is God John chapter 8 they took up stones you know uh, or they said to him uh, you're not yet 50 years old you know how could you know Abraham and Jesus said before Abraham was I am and they pick up stones to stone him why because he was saying I'm God before Abraham was ego I me I am. Thomas, seeing the resurrected Christ, exclaimed, My Lord and my God. Now, those who deny the deity of Jesus say that he was swearing. Really? And Jesus didn't rebuke him, but rather commended him for that? He affirms the confession that Thomas made. Furthermore, years later, John is on the Isle of Patmos and he has a vision of the risen Lord and he falls to his feet at the feet of Jesus or he falls at the feet of Jesus as a dead man. And he says this, or Jesus says to him when John falls at his feet, Jesus says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. 
Now listen to Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God beside me. In light of Isaiah, Jesus is clearly claiming to be the Lord of hosts, the one true God. So verse 1 says that Jesus is eternal. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is God. And it says to us that God has spoken in Jesus. He's the Word. The Word. Jesus reveals what the invisible God is like. You don't know what I'm thinking unless I tell you, unless I put it into words. One of my pet peeves about sportscasters is, right now that quarterback is thinking, blah, blah, blah. You have no clue what they're thinking. Get real, people. I'll never forget my homiletics professor in college used to, he used to talk about... Uh, Staying humble. And he, and he said, you know, if you, if you want to stay humble, preach to children, you know. He said he, he'd never forget he was in a very large church and back in the 50s and back then they used to always have a, the evangelist come to the junior department and preach. And so uh, Dr. Peterson said this one little boy, he was probably about 10 or 11, said he was just fixated on every word. Said, man, said he just was, wow, just he said, I thought this kid gets it. He knows it. I'm getting through to him. The Spirit is really working with him. And so he said, as quick as I finished, I said, are there any questions? So he said, sure enough, this little boy's hand shot in the air immediately. And Dr. Peterson said, I looked at him and said, yes, son, what is it? And the little boy said, you know what I'm getting for Christmas? <laughs> you don't know what people are thinking unless they put that into words. And then you may regret asking them. But God is spirit. He is invisible to our finite senses. Paul says he dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. He says no one has seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, but Jesus has made him known. Jesus himself said, he that has seen me has seen the Father. So it is only through Jesus Christ that we can know the Father personally. And then Jesus shows, our, shows us our responsibility toward God. The writer of the Hebrews says in chapter 1, God, after he had spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets as many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. God has spoken to us, and Jesus is his word. And we do well to listen to and obey Jesus Christ. John chapter 3, verse 36 says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. To ignore God's word, Jesus Christ, is to put your soul at eternal risk. Jesus is the eternal God, the authoritative word of God. Listen to him. 
So we go to verse 14, and we see the incarnation in time. And again, this is, most, this is one of the most wonderful and yet most unfathomable verses in all of Holy Scripture. How can God, who is spirit, become human flesh? How can the eternal God become temporal? How can the unchanging God take on a human body, which is subject to change? How can the immortal die as a substitute for sinners? How can this man, Jesus, that John saw, also be the eternal creator of the universe? All of this is mystery. And yet, in spite of the fact that it is incomprehensible to our finite minds, it is what the Bible teaches. It declares. The angel said to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. John makes four statements here. He says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That takes us back to verse 1. The eternal Word, who is God. The eternal one became flesh. That's, that's a striking term that John used. He could have said he, he took on a body. Rather, he says uh, he took on flesh. He could have said he became a man, which was true. But the word became flesh. Perhaps God has already seen the false teaching of the Docetus who denied the true humanity of Jesus. Who said, well, no... Jesus in the early church the problem was not believing that Jesus was God the early church had a problem believing he was man they had no problem believing he was God they didn't believe he was man and yet the Bible teaches the true humanity of Jesus so John says the word became flesh Jesus the human Jesus had a beginning in the womb of Mary he had a beginning the Son of God, the, the immaculate conception truly, that is, that, that seed that was planted in Mary's womb was created by God and put there so that the human Jesus had a beginning. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, literally tabernacled among us. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle was a picture of God dwelling with his people. Now Jesus in human body is pitching his tent among men, as it were. John says, we have seen his glory. Glory, the glory of God was associated with the tabernacle. Exodus chapter 40, with regard to Jesus, when he performs that first miracle at Cana of Galilee, and he turns the water into wine. John says this beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. On the Mount of Transfiguration, of course, John and the others saw his glory. But there is a deeper sense in which the glory of God is manifested, and that's at the cross. When Jesus went out in the night to betray Jesus, Jesus said this, Now is the Son of Man glorified, 
and God is glorified in him. When John and the other apostles saw Jesus willingly offer himself for our sins, they supremely saw the glory of God. Where is supremely the glory of God manifested? In creation? No, at the cross. At the cross where the God-man died for sinners. Then Jesus' glory was that of the only Son from the Father. The word translated here, only Son, means unique, only one of its kind. The same phrase is used to describe Isaac. Isaac was not Abraham's only son, but he was the son of the promise. He was a unique son. This does not refer to Jesus being born of Mary or his coming into existence in time, in the past. Rather, it is, it is his unique relationship to the Father as the eternal Son, which had no beginning. Let us make man in our image, we're told in the book of Genesis. Us, Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is God's Son in a way that no one else ever could be. That is true both of his deity and of his humanity. He is God's Son in a unique way. And then he's full of grace and truth. Grace is God's unmerited favor shown to those who deserve his judgment. If you, don't, if you can earn salvation, then you don't need grace. Somebody was talking about one of the politicians that's running for president, one of the thousands, and talking about all of his achievements and all that he had done, that he had earned heaven. Really? Seriously? And yet all over the world, that's what people think. Every religion on the face of the earth, if you take them all, there is one that says that salvation is by grace and all the rest of them say it's by works. Christianity is the only one that says it's by grace. Listen, if you're not a sinner, you don't need grace. If you can earn your way to heaven, if it's possible, you don't need grace. Grace is for sinners. Only sinners need it. And so to receive God's grace, what do you have to do? Acknowledge that you're a sinner. That's it. <laughs> Renounce all trust in your own merit. And fall at the feet of Jesus. Truth points to God's character. He is absolute truth. By contrast, Satan is a liar and the father of lies. As the God of truth, his righteous standard calls us to truth. And yet the Bible says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We cannot attain his perfect righteousness. And again, let me remind you again, here's another question for you. What does it take for you to get to heaven? And the answer is absolute perfection. Absolute holiness. Can't get to heaven unless you meet that standard can't do it. Obviously, I'm not perfect. I'm not absolutely holy, and yet I believe I'm going to heaven. Why? Because Jesus Christ is absolutely perfect, absolutely holy. He died in my place. He took the wrath of God that was due to me. 
And God has imputed to me all of His perfection, all of His righteousness, all of His holiness. And so when I stand before the throne of God, I will stand as one who is perfectly holy. Not my own holiness, not my own righteousness. It's a bald righteousness, but it's mine. It's mine because God has declared me to be righteous in Christ, in Him. Jesus embodied the truth. He lived in accordance with God's truth. He loved God the Father with all of His heart, all of His soul, all of His mind, all of His strength, every moment of His existence, which you and I have not done. But that, that perfect life, the merit of that perfect life becomes ours when we acknowledge that we are sinners and throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus Christ. As believers, we are obliged to the Word made flesh to trust Him as Savior and Lord. There is, there is only one way to heaven. There are not many ways. There is not more than one way. Why? Because there's no one else who is the Word, who was with God and who is God. There is no other that became flesh and dwelt among us. There is no other that has kept the law of God perfectly. No one else, no one else can be our Savior. Only Jesus Christ. This is the reason for Christmas. That's why we give each other gifts. We're just reminding ourselves that God has given us the greatest gift there is. The gift of His Son. He that has the Son has life. He that has the Son has life. So have you answered the crucial question correctly? If not, read the Gospel of John and ask the Holy Spirit of God to open your eyes to see the glory of Jesus Christ. And when you see His glory, you will trust Him as Savior and Lord. If you're struggling with things in life, come back to that critical question. Who is Jesus? And if He is who He says He is, then the decisions that you must make in life, the questions that you must answer, must be made in accordance with His Word and in accordance with His will. Jesus still asks today, who am I? And the answer is, you are the eternal Word made flesh, the eternal God who became man. We're going to have